Listener discretion advised by the sound contains salty language. So if you don't like that, turn it down now. No, now, like right now. Okay, let's start this fucking show. <laughs> Any more questions? Um. <laughs> wow. you, when you said any more questions about <laughs> 12 inappropriate things yeah. trying to push through the doorway of my mouth <laughs> oh, at the same oh, time yeah, yeah, yeah. You, had, um, <laughs> you had a funnel problem thank god yeah yeah <laughs> for the best okay from the coast salish land of seattle we're by the sound your community invested podcast Each episode, we speak with the brightest minds from Seattle and the Pacific Northwest. We discuss art and pop culture, as well as local news and politics. I'm Sarah Mays, sitting this week with Chelsea Alvarez and Aisha Hauser. This week, we meet with cartoonist and multi-sensory artist E.T. Russian. We'll talk about their work and the inspirations behind it. Aisha, Chelsea, and I will also discuss the HBO teen drama Euphoria. This is By the Sound. Am I going to get depressed watching it? Okay, here's the thing. Here's the thing I had with Euphoria. You did watch it. I watched the first few episodes. The main character is a uh, queer, biracial, like, girl in the suburbs struggling with addiction. Mm. And that was a little too close to home Mm. for, like, my personal... Mm high school experience. I didn't go to rehab. Probably should have. Uh, But watching, watching her deal with uh, her untreated mental illness in that way. um, I guess, was it treated? It was treated. It was was treated. treated. And and she had a lot of, she had, she had a lot going on. Um, Watching that and thinking of my own untreated mental mm-hmm. illness was uh, a little too much for me to handle. Mm-hmm. I, I got I got really uh, um, emotional. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard being a kid. It's hard being a kid. It's hard being a kid that's mentally ill. It's hard being a kid that's brown in a white space. It's uh, I have a lot of unhealed shit around that. So I was not ready for Euphoria. That's, I think, been my resistance to watching it is that not I had I was a brown kid in a mostly white space. I was othered a lot. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I probably it, it, and I don't have exactly the same issues, but I have enough that I feel like there was something. About, and I think it's going to be excellent when I finally have the headspace to watch it. But I think there's something about it that's been I'm not. Well, I'm going to name I was going to say I'm not afraid to watch it, but I'm like, no, I'm afraid to watch it because I don't know where it's going to take me. Because it does look really good. So having said all that, what do you want to tell us about Euphoria, Sarah? Good question. Um, So Euphoria (laughs) uh, is a TV show on HBO. Um, It had its first uh, season last summer. And so it's not the most current thing, but you know, you know what, guys? Fuck currency. Like it. Uh, we're moms. Hello. Yeah, we're moms. And- we get a universal mom pass. Like, yeah. We get any- to things when we fucking get to it. Yeah, we're busy. <sighs> Holy shit. And if all the shit streams it. online Jesus. all the time. Like, it's always current. We, we, Don't worry. We could review My Fair Lady for fuck's sake. You know, it's like. Or it, other movies. I, but yeah. Not, not that we will. Mean. We won't. I mean, we could. We won't. We could. We, we could. will. No. No. <laughs> I just, I don't, I don't even know why I thought of that. Next week on By the Sound. <laughs> Gone My the Fair wind. Lady. Oh, God. <laughs> oh. oh, ow. Oh. That would need to be the whole, like, uh, uh, other We'd actually podcast. need to be doing say, shots to do that. My, yeah, my white supremacist family practically had that movie on a loop. My black ass family. I mean, <laughs> I grew up with my Mexican mom, but, like, we watched that movie a lot. Like, Really? Yeah. I was, like... Low-key obsessed with Scarlett O'Hara, which in retrospect... I've never seen it full. Oh, really? Never once. I've only, like, you know, the parts of it, but I've never seen all of it. I don't think I I have either. I think I've seen um, about uh, 50 um, showings of it in part. Mm. Now, The Sound of Music, obsessed. Really? Obsessed. Never seen it all the way through. (laughs) Maybe we should just watch parts of... Yeah. 
early Technicolor films. Yeah. Yeah. This could be a whole other podcast. This is another podcast. Um, West Side Story. Yeah. God, I love West Side love Story. Love it. It's my favorite you're musical. You're a jet. You're a jet all the way back. So City. Euphoria on oh. HBO. It's um, <laughs> uh, written and created, written, directed by Sam Levinson, who brings a very high energy, you know, Kind of that like MTV style of directing. I've heard his it, name before. It, 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 and by MTV, I'm just showing my age because that used to be shorthand for, you know, lots of moving cameras and cuts, but like in a beautiful way, not in an annoying way. The show is about high school students. Um, and something that I found really frustrating as uh, a teenager was how I felt every entertainment product I saw that showed teenagers totally missed the mark for what our lives were really like. And um, Wait, how old were you when My So-Called Life came out? For some reason, I I wasn't able to watch My So-Called Life, and it bugged me because I'd see her, like, Claire Danes in Entertainment Weekly or TV Guide, and I'm like, oh, she's so pretty. I want to watch her. Sassy. Uh, Here's a Chelsea fun fact. Please. I am, well, I don't know if it's still up. I was at one point credited on Wikipedia as the originator of the Claire Danes crying emoji, <laughs> which is like a regular crying emoji, but then with a hashtag at the bottom for her walnut chin. Um, you know how Claire Danes, her chin does that yeah, thing yeah. when That's she cries? Awesome. Yeah. Do you have a wiki page? No. <laughs> Why would I? Why would I? Well, if you're referenced on Wikipedia, I thought that automatically meant it, you no, had a page. No, it doesn't link to my page. It's just a, um, and again, this might not. She exist doesn't even anymore. have a profile on our our podcast Chelsea, website. Listen, <laughs> I'm a woman of mystery. I know, and that's okay. Like I respect that. I do feel bad about that because I'm like, you really need to be on it, Chelsea. Jupiter no, and Scorpio. She doesn't. She can. She can. Oh, sorry. You don't have to. I don't like. I mean, you don't have to if you don't want to. I just don't like sharing information All right, about myself. That's true. Said the woman on her own fucking podcast. With Instagram. <laughs> I follow you on Instagram, you know. Great. I follow you on Instagram. I follow you to the grocery store <laughs> and to the gas station. Wow. Euphoria. <laughs> okay. What speaks to you about euphoria, Sarah? Okay, so euphoria speaks to real life issues that teenagers actually face it does so in an unflinching way so what that ends up meaning is that um for parents it's all of your worst nightmares for for anybody if you got triggers trigger alert yeah (laughs) content warning euphoria has got it covered it's gonna it's gonna dredge up your shit everyone um and but they're God, it's amazing. It's it 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 sees teenagers in their full humanity, and uh, there was the character Rue Bennett, played by Zendaya. Uh, I think it's Zendaya or Zendaya. I'm never quite sure. She plays someone with unresolved mental illness. That it, it seems she was highly medicated as a youth for OCD, bipolar disorder, ADD, and also in proximity to opioids, developed an addiction which is um, threatening to kill her. Also reflected on Euphoria is the character Kat Hernandez, um, uh, played by Barbie Ferreira. She comes into her own sexuality, finding her own sexual power uh, in ways I won't fully uh, uh, described so as not to give spoilers, um, but I felt that she is seen fully as someone who struggles with her body image because of weight, and in in a way that I don't see much on TV shows for for teenagers. And and then the the biggest deal for me though was um, the character Jules Vaughn, played by Hunter Schaefer, who's a transgender girl, and she faces many nightmares. But what absolutely floored me was that you uh, you get a very good sense of her body. And I'd ask y'all, like, when when did at what age did you feel like your body was reflected on television? Oh, 
I don't remember exactly what year it was, but it was like the second or third season of Grey's Anatomy. Mm-hmm. And there was, uh, oh, what is her name? The character's name was Cassie. And she, oh, yeah. right. And she's yeah. thick and yeah. real cute. Really cute. And there's a scene of her dancing in her bedroom in her underwear. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time I ever saw anyone with a body, even remotely like mine, just loving being in their body. Yeah, I would actually say that same scene. And I was in my 40s when I saw it, yeah. like maybe seven, six, seven years ago. So it wasn't even recent. Um, definitely not growing up. Mm-hmm. I think that's why I never thought I was thin enough. And I was not. We talked about this in the first show. Like, I think I had some body dysmorphia because I just always thought I was overweight and never thin enough. And I'm like, shit. I look at pictures now. I'm like, oh, there, what is happening? So. I mean, um, I saw Oprah's body sometimes looked like mine, but she was she was, she battling, was battling it. Oprah, the most heartbreaking thing about Oprah, I know we're digressing. My one friend said she loves that we digress. Anyway. <laughs> um, it's on brand. It's like she accomplished so fucking much. And I understood, the, I understand now more as an adult, her reason for, you know, wanting to be vulnerable publicly and publicly going on this weight loss journey. But all it did for me was still was affirm my inadequacy and my, if Oprah can lose weight, then I need to lose weight too. And reinforce that that your body is for fighting. Yeah. That your body is for like, I need to, I need to send Oprah the fuck it diet book because she (laughs) bought Weight Watchers. Oh, did she? She bought Weight Watchers. (gasps) Oprah. She bought it. Damn. She bought Weight Watchers. Mom, no. And also, I will say, I finally got to a point where I said to myself, if Oprah can't fucking keep the weight off, neither can I. And she literally can have someone watch what she fucking eats 24 hours a day and slap food out of her hand. So it is not about that. Can we all agree? Thank you. Anyway, euphoria. Euphoria. I I will tell you, Sarah, the more you're talking, the more I'm like, I definitely can't handle the show quite yet. And I don't know what it's, I couldn't even name. And I I don't, I mean, I, I guess my question is, is there... And, and I guess because it's season one, maybe there's going to be more seasons. Like, is there resolution or at least? Because <laughs> no. if there's no. not, then there's no way I'm watching the show for no. a while. Like, I need some, I want to, in something I choose to engage in, have some little bit, itty bitty satisfaction a little bit. It doesn't have to be fucking bullshit Disney, but just a, a character who just has a shit life and then has a shit ending would make me fucking go into a depression. Well, it's not about right now. endings. I mean, I think we're talking about the way that Hunter Schaefer's body is presented as real, real, yeah. valid and kind of just a body like yeah. her, uh, I believe they Hunter Schaefer uses they them pronouns. I don't think so, I but think so. I could. OK, I'll look it up. Um. But it's not sensational. Um, Well, trans bodies uh, have historically been a circus act. Yes. And with the decline of circus, there's been the ascension of trans bodies in pornography. Mm. Um, A a baby trans, as they're called, might only be able to find... um, bodies they may grow into in pornography mm. so um, this is a healthier place to oh view god a yes trans body. yeah that's so i fair. mean this is one way i mean it fucking floored me like mm. i i watch a lot of tv like on the treadmill and i was w- watching this and saw that first episode and I I just I it I could I was not prepared because mm. all the bodies I'd seen on you know for general audience consumption on television uh, ever I I you know felt estranged from and there she is and she's beautiful mm. and she's you know just trying to live her life and and go through you know the things that a lot of teenagers go through. And the show treats her with a fundamental dignity. And I don't think it's a spoiler if, if anyone sees previews of this just to know uh, the, the, the character played by Zendaya, um, you know, has a crush on her. So there's sort of a, a, a lesbian uh, through line here, which is another story yeah. 
never told. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, in those ways I felt like really affirmed, but I mean, there's still a long way to go in that. Uh, okay. So now y- young trans girls can see a body like they might have uh, that's not in pornography, but there's a lot of anti-trans violence yes. uh, on the program. It is, um, you know, come to the show in a, a, a healthy mental state. If you're if you're struggling today, yeah. it might have not. your therapist on speed dial just in case. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I I couldn't get over that that sense of of seeing something like myself on screen. It stuck with me long enough that here, like seven months later, yeah, I'm I'm like we got to talk about it on the podcast. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, I think affirmation is so important in reality because the trans violence is real um, in the world, and we, that's also why we need to um, shut down turfs because it is not a benign um, point of view. It, it causes harm. Um, there's one. Okay, I'm going to name a guilty pleasure. I'm really into Sabrina, the chilling adventures of Sabrina, and they have a, which I told Chelsea all about in our last ride home. Um, But there's a character who transitions on the show. Now it's Sabrina. So it is not at all the level of euphoria. And yet I think, and I've, I've been meaning to Google it, but I keep forgetting. Um, I wonder what, how the trans community feels about that representation because um, Theo is a trans male who transition on the show starts out as Susie in the beginning first episodes and transitions and his friends um, go with it. They're like, Oh, he's, he's Theo now. Like at one point Sabrina, some happens to her and she, and then they're like, Oh no, that's Theo. And everybody, you know, go, it's kind of a, I mean, maybe it's a Disney version of transition. I don't know who may, I guess Netflix makes Sabrina, but there was something about that that was like, wow, we never would have seen something like that. I wouldn't have seen anything like that in the 80s growing up as a teenager. And and it was um, something very... And there were there was um, teasing and bullying, but again, like after school special kind of, rather than um, what sounds like euf- the reality of euphoria or more real representation. But there was something touching about it that it's like oh even for those who maybe wouldn't watch something like euphoria there's it's at least there i don't want to say at least but i don't know so i would be interested if you ever watch the chilling adventures of sabrina which is not euphoria but um what you would think yeah well and and whether we're talking about sabrina or you know Seattle Public Library processes. I can't speak for the the trans community and no, <laughs> you can't. Anything, You're absolutely but, right. I apologize um, about that. Oh, no, 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 yeah. no, no. It's okay. I oh, just okay. want to make clear because yeah. it occurred to me this is something I wanted to you know. Uh, my views are mine alone, based on my very specific experience in life. I speak for the black monolith. You do. Okay. <laughs> Sarah. Chelsea. When you say that By the Sound is a community-invested podcast, what does that mean for our listeners? Ah, glad you asked. It means that in addition to hearing our conversations about local issues and interviews with our most interesting Seattle-area neighbors, fans of the show can join our listener community online by supporting the podcast on Patreon. Doing so will unlock access to our private Facebook group. What are we posting in the Facebook group? (laughs) Well, in addition to exclusive previews about what we'll be discussing on the show, we offer a curated stream of the best and most provocative local news stories each day. That's dope. How much will it cost to join? Our online community membership is available to all patrons starting at $5 per month. How else can fans of the show invest in this community? Our supporters on Patreon who contribute $10 or more per month will receive exclusive invitations to buy the sound meetups at Seattle area coffee shops, bars, and parks, where they could meet by the sound co-host, guests, and other local fans of the show. Sweet. Where should listeners go to donate? They can visit bythesound.net and click on the donate button. That's bythesound.net. Or go directly to patreon.com slash bythesound. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash bythesound. Our guest today is Seattle cartoonist and multi-sensory artist E.T. Russian. 
They've published in a number of books, comics, zines, and magazines. Some of E.T. Russian's work can be seen in the solo exhibition Double Clear, now showing at the Hedrine Gallery on Capitol Hill through March 1st. E.T., welcome to the show. I'm very excited to be here. (laughs) For listeners in a good position to do so, I would invite them to now visit etrussian.com, where they can view samples of E.T.'s work as we discuss it on the show. But first, I'd like to know more about your work as a healthcare provider uh, and how that may inform or inspire your artwork. I turned 42 this month, and when I was 18, I was in an accident where I almost died, and that's why I have artificial legs. And so um, I went to rehab, and I had to learn how to walk again, and I have used you know, a cane, crutches, and a wheelchair on and off since then. At the time, I actually, uh, I was publishing a lot of zines. A zine is a small self-published magazine. Um, It was the 90s. Um, And this was before social media. And so I was publishing a lot of zines, and I thought I was going to go to school and be a journalist. I wanted to do freelance journalism internationally. After my accident, my friends were like, you really need to write about this. And so I started making zines about disability, which pretty much it was, it was really hard to find any media about disability. But after that, I was like, I need insurance. I mean, I can't really screw around, you know, I I couldn't imagine being a freelance anything. And because that didn't offer insurance, and my legs are really expensive. Um, I tell people having fake legs is like having a used car. You know, mm-hmm. they're always in the shop, and they always need new parts. Yeah. And I was on disability for 10 years, like uh, food stamps, Medicare, Social Security, and medical coupons. And there's a government organization called DVR, Division of Vocational Rehab. Oh, yeah. And they... Their goal is to get disabled people. They want us to be taxpayers, so they want us to um, get jobs. So they'll help you get jobs. But it's actually really helpful because they'll send you – They that's how I went to college. They paid for eight years of college for me, and I became a physical therapist. Um, and the reason I became a physical therapist is because I could work with other people with disabilities all day, but I didn't think that being like a counselor therapist or social worker was the right match for me because I already take on a lot of people's emotional energy and being a physical therapist, you're still working through like big challenges with someone, but it um, the focus isn't on the emotional aspect of healing. It's on actually the physical aspect of healing, but that is really helpful for moving through the emotional aspects of healing. And so you're you're still working with the person as a whole person, but, you know, when I went through my accident, like I grew up in basically a working-class family where no one went to therapy, and I never went to therapy after mm-hmm. this accident. I And basically doing writing my zine and making art and writing about what I was experiencing acquiring a disability. A lot of people and my therapists now say, wow, that was basically you created your own do-it-yourself version of therapy. And I was very well adjusted to my disability. I think, honestly, I think being queer and trans, like having embraced those aspects of myself and really pushing back on the idea of shame, like I'm pushing back on shame. I'm claiming pride in these aspects of myself that are, often misunderstood. So that gave me the tool. So the moment I was disabled, I was like, I'm going to rock this. And like, <laughs> I don't know. I really had almost no role models. I had one friend, my friend Nomi Lamb, who was my only role model. And we became each other's role models. And so anyway, that's how I got into being a physical therapist, which I've now done for 14 years. And the thing about Working in healthcare is, I've also, you know, so I didn't go to therapy after my accident until many, many years later, like almost 10 years later. And that's when I started to realize I had PTSD. Like I had, mm-hmm. I remember sitting in a class in school where we had to learn about the DSM, the diagnostic mm-hmm. manual for, you know, mental health. And 
I remember being like, okay, learning about the criteria for this and that. And then when they got to the part about PTSD, I was like, I meet all the criteria. (laughs) (laughs) And anyway, um, so working, working in healthcare for me has been, I've realized a very savvy choice because like if you have PTSD, um, the idea of like I don't I don't have all the right words for this, but like exposing yourself in kind of small manageable ways to things that could be a potential trigger for you yeah. is helpful for managing your PTSD and like um, building resilience. Yeah, and so because of my work, it like being in a healing role with someone else is healing for me, and it's on so many levels. And then it brings me really close to the human experience. Like I witness very intimate moments with people every day. And I do within, I create a lot of boundaries, but I do make a choice to share vulnerable things about myself in small doses if it seems appropriate with the person. And that is also healing reciprocally. And all of this feeds my art practice. And I, I come to my art practice and my, work as a healthcare provider from a disability justice perspective. Was there a video you did about kind of opening up that PTSD window? <laughs> yes, uh, there Something was. about a roller coaster? Yeah. Sins Invalid used to do a show, like a big annual performance event that would be like multiple nights and feature performers from all around the world with disabilities. Um and doing really seminal, groundbreaking performance work. And so I flew down to see that. And then the second night, I volunteered so I could meet people. And basically, this is how I've met some of the most important people in my life. I didn't really grow as an artist until I met these people because I didn't have peers, you know. Mm-hmm. And so the piece I made for that show, I knew I wanted to do something about PTSD because I never really had. And I wanted to make a visual poem. And so this was one of my first visual poems, and I was really satisfied with it. So I went to the Puyallup Fairgrounds with my little microphone, and I recorded the wooden. They have actually three roller coasters at the Puyallup Fair. And I picked the one that sounded the coolest, which was the oldest one, which is the wooden one, and it has really nice sounds. And all the rest of my friends were riding rides, but I was actually so scared to ride the rides because I have PTSD that I was like this little happy like duck, like sitting in my wheelchair <laughs> with my headphones on and my little fuzzy microphone, like taking all these audio recordings of the roller coaster while all my friends rode the actual, you know, rides. But um, I used that, and then a lot of imagery of the long corridors in the hospital. Yeah, there's a lot of long hallways, and yeah. they're very. Uh, pregnant with feeling and emotion for me. And um, the elevators, the hospital elevators are also, there's a lot about um, elevator culture I've learned from working in a hospital. It's like if you're in a wheelchair, people often don't make room for you on the elevator. And there's a lot to navigating an elevator, especially if you're in a wheelchair or have a disability. And so for me, I consider elevators like every day. And so all of that imagery is in the piece. And then I wrote basically my first real poem about PTSD. And I noticed that the timing and effect of, um, well, it looks like a tracking shot of uh, the progress down the hallway of mm. the hospital. It, it's like zooming toward the end of the hallway. Yeah, like slowly and zooming. the timing of it is such that, you know, the viewer really does feel like being in that wheelchair from the perspective and timing. Um, it's like, it was such a, a, a simple thing, but the subtleties of it became very immersive and the, the audio track you put in there, I th- thought became sort of haunting. Like there's an anxiety mm. beneath it that I, uh, mm-hmm. I, I felt deeply. Mm. I think it's called, I used to think my startle response was a personal quirk. Which is true. Like, if if I'm sitting in my car on my video game and you come up and knock on my car door while I'm in my car, I will scream. And this has happened for years, and I used to just think it was a me thing until, like, uh, I went to a PTSD support group. And, like, support group number one, I realized that that's just um, comes with PTSD. And I was like, oh, I thought it was that was part of my personality. It's the song of our people. (laughs) It is. Like, if, if I'm on a street... Um, 
and you come up behind me and surprise me by touching me on the shoulder. Yeah. Like, I don't know, someday that shit's going to give me a heart attack. Yeah. (laughs) Run up, get done up. Do you feel like at your core you have stillness or motion? I stillness. But I've also cultivated that because of disability, I've had to sit a lot. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really good at sitting for long periods of time. When you think about your child self, like, is that Ellery? I was pretty active, yeah, actually. But I would also sit and draw a lot. Mm -hmm. So I think that I've always been able to sit and focus on a thing. I have a friend whose family uh, runs a haunted house uh, every every year. Fuck that shit. Yeah, no can do. See, I've embraced haunted houses. Have you but, really? Yeah, but I want to hear your yeah, story. Yeah, but you've like, actively worked to heal your PTSD. They told me that the most reactive people in the haunted house are black women. Mm. And I was like, yes. <laughs> of course we are. Uh, mm. The startle response is strong from like a, you know, constantly... Um, being in a state of fight or flight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did you feel when they said that to you? Like oh, the it way was like, that they I just had like a, well, they're, um, they're a black femme. Mm. So like they, they knew what they were saying. They're also a therapist. Um, but it, I just had like a very immediate physical understanding. And it also like, I, I, have also thought that my startle response was a personal quirk and have not uh, always had it tied to the circumstances of my life. I I want to say one thing about the roller coaster is that I, on that trip, I rode the roller coaster and I screamed and then I laughed yeah. and then I rode it again. And then I did a, one of those booths where you go and you throw darts at balloons and then you get a prize. And I got uh, myself a stuffed animal and he's a little neon orange teddy bear. And I named him orange crash and (laughs) I love him. He was like my, like pushing through my PTSD to ride the roller coaster teddy bear. And, um, and now I have actually since working on that piece, I rode a roller coaster, um, that went upside down. (sighs) Oh, wow. And it was so fun. I did it like two more times. And now I can ride some of those rides at the fair that I couldn't ride before. Like, you know, there's one that's like, it's like, it's like a circle. It's kind of like a carousel, except it goes up in the air and you're on swings. Yes. Instead of being on horses, you're on swings. Yeah. And they like fan out. Yes. From the centrifugal force. Before, like maybe six, seven years ago when I rode that, I was so frightened. Yeah. I couldn't open my eyes and I had to hold on with like white knuckles. And now I did it over the summer and I was still scared. Like I couldn't really look around. Like I couldn't look behind myself or to the side very much, Mm -hmm. but I was able to like kind of enjoy it. (laughs) But I still found it scary. But like I I do like, I think these feminists, like, there's like um, feminists who analyze like why we like watching horror movies and stuff. Oh yeah, and there yeah. is something about like being able to laugh at your fear or like if you watch it enough, you it doesn't scare you as much anymore, and then you feel more powerful. And I do think there's something to that. Like I guess they call that exposure therapy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. If you look at my Netflix queue, you you'd think I'm studying to become a serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> Who's to say you're not? I know. Was that like a casual outing? (laughs) (laughs) Looking backward on your career, uh, about 19 years ago, uh, you produced and directed a film called Third Antenna, a documentary about the radical nature of drag. Now, unfortunately, I wasn't able to find a way to stream it online. Um, but in any case, what is it that led you to take an interest in the drag scene? Oh, my gosh. This is so funny because I thought we, I would, you all would, and maybe you will, like, ask me more about what I'm doing now. So, like, to go back into the past is really cool. Imagine it's the mid-90s. 
like the only person in the media for being LGBT was practically Ellen DeGeneres, and that was pretty much it. Yeah. There was almost nothing, and there was pretty much, I can't really think of much more than that from when I was growing up. The words um, non-binary, the words gender non-conforming, that was not in the vocabulary. They as a pronoun was not a thing. That was not a thing. And so uh, what was started happening were drag shows. And I come from the punk scene where it was like, it's a cool if you don't have money, you just make it yourself and you don't have to have any schooling or any training or any money. And of course, that was very helpful and liberating because I had no money. (laughs) Um, And so I lived in Olympia, Washington, which is where like things like Riot Girl came from. And a lot of things felt possible in Olympia in a way because it was a really cheap place to live. Like, I think my rent was 200 a month. Um, and I was on disability and I could afford to live there. So there was a lot of drag shows happening there. And then here in what we call Seattle, which we know is Coast Salish Duwamish territory. A lot of my friends just started doing drag and that's what we were doing. And... I mean, Leslie Feinberg had come out with the book Transgender Warriors, and that was really groundbreaking. And then we started doing all these drag shows. And then just after a year or two of that, some people who had like a drag persona started going by their drag name. And pretty much we all ended up coming out as trans over the next 20 years, right? At the time, if you went to Ingersoll, it was mostly trans women who were like in their 50s is how it felt. And I was a teenager and I just, I had no idea what I was doing. It was like feeling your way in the dark, you know? And it's really, I basically, yeah. So making third and it making third antenna, even though we had no money and like the footage isn't that great, but we, we, um, me and three friends, we had a drag troupe. Well, no, first we started just documenting all the drag shows. Then we formed a drag troupe and we went across to, Um, across the country and parts of Canada on tour, which was hysterical because we had no money and it was a very Motley Crue uh, tour, (laughs) like very unglamorous. But we recorded all those shows and we would um, invite local people to perform too. And so, and we would interview them. And then, um, so we made a documentary and it was kind of about, it. not people who were very polished, like in New York, there was like, you know, some very polished um, drag performers. This was not trying to capture the most polished of the drag scene, and it was not trying to capture the pageant scene or, like, female and male impersonators or, like, Vegas or anything. It was more like what was the fringes, and I think it was more like people who were doing it because that was who they were and they felt very passionate. And I think, um, so anyway, we, we still, and this came out right before things like DVDs. (laughs) So (laughs) we still need to digitize it, but we did screen it. We screened it as part of the queer film festival in partnership with the Henry art gallery because they had that, um, what was it? A trans history and 99 objects. Right. Yeah. Show. And, um, and so Thread Antenna was included in part of the programming of that as local trans history Awesome. or history. And so that was really powerful to actually have it be shown. And actually a lot of people came out for the screening and it was really meaningful because it's really hard to find that history. It's still my goal to digitize it and just make it available online for historical purposes, which was the whole reason why we made it because we knew these pockets of community don't get documented. And if you don't document it with your cruddy camera, when you have you know, we had no equipment, no money, no training. And we were like, this has to be documented. This is so important. And so now, you know, I'm glad it is because a lot of us don't know all of our history. History. In 2014, you published uh, the Ring of Fire anthology. Oh, yeah, the book. Yeah. Yes. What is, what's in there? Ring of Fire was the zine I made basically after my accident that is about... In the first scene I I wrote, it said, like, this scene promotes queer sex, gender fuck, and the advancement of amputees everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Now I would say, so, so basically the zine was called Ring of Fire, and it was about 
um, coming of age with disability and trauma, and also there was a lot of erotic content in there and like trans content and stuff about class and the way all those things combined. And then I stopped, I didn't write anything for 10 years because I was sort of dealing with the rest of my life and just processing a lot. And then I got approached about making it into a book because even that many years later, so many people would still come up to me and talk to me about my zine because there really were like almost no books about disability. There's starting to be some now that are that are good. But mo- mostly there was nothing there's still too little in the world of publishing but um but yeah i had people say like i have your zine on my bookshelf with like my most important books because there was Mm. nothing else about that at that time so it was kind of it was seminal in a way um and so it was an honor to have it be published but i wanted to connect it with more current like what i wrote then is absolutely not what i would write now about gender or I mean, some of the stuff about disability, yes. Definitely the stuff about gender I would write about in a really different way, but it's a really different time. So half the book of Ring of Fire anthology is my old zines and then content that I wrote in the 20-teens that was a lot of interviews with other people doing important cultural work around disability justice and then essays. You know, I wrote about what it was like to work in healthcare a little bit and, you know, a lot of drawings and things like that. Your current exhibition is called Double Clear. Where did that name come from? Oh my gosh, Double Clear. Okay, well, the name Double Clear. So actually, I give credit to my best friend, Freddie, because Freddie and I were having a conversation sometime last year. He was talking with his mom about something that was challenging, and she wasn't really fully understanding him. And he had to say, well, in his retelling of it to me, he was like, and so I I would told her, mom, let me be double clear. And then he said <laughs> what he felt to her. I don't think that's what he actually said to her, but in his retelling to me, he said, let me be double clear. And it just like... uh immediately was burned in my brain the words and I could just see them and then I was like that's important and I knew I felt something and so I named my show after that because I think the phrase double clear is has multiple meanings like if you're double clear about something you're extra clear about it like you want to be fully understood. Like, I want to be clear in what I'm saying to you, and I want to be so clear. I want it to be double clear what I'm saying to you. I want you to get it. But the other thing about clear is, like, if something's clear, you can't see it. Mm. And so if it's double clear, it's, like, extra clear, so it's extra evasive and you can't see it. So there could be this other meaning of it. I also learned that double clear is an equestrian term, and I think it's when you're on a horse and you jump two hurdles at once. Like you jump two hurdles or back to back with yeah. without landing in between. Because when I tried to hashtag my show, I realized it was all horse jumping <laughs> like imagery. So that's why the hashtag for my show is double clear show. Um, and then a friend of mine uh, who actually performed in the live event for double clear, for her, it had a whole nother meaning. She's a woman of color and she's darker skinned. Uh, or she's melanated. And she has like a foundation she wears that's called double clear or something like that. For her, it was, it had to do with the makeup that she wears on her face every day and being a, a brown skinned woman of color, putting this on her makeup Mm -hmm. and the meaning she has around that. And so I was like, Oh, I mean, I like that it had multiple intents. Uh, Yeah. And this show double clear my show is about choosing what you're living for when facing an uncertain future. And so in some ways, it was clear to me what the content was I would be kind of grappling with in making that show. But then on the other hand, it was not clear to me, and it was totally elusive, and it took me years of working on the show to get more clear about it. So it was really the like multiple meanings of double clear felt like it very much resonated for me about this show. And, and the two main characters in the show are apparitions. They're gargoyle apparitions, so they're not solid. Their bodies are like ghost, ghostly, so you can kind of see through them. So then in that way, they're also kind of clear. 
or translucent. Now I want to know what you're living for. Oh my gosh. Okay. So choosing what you're living for. Yeah, it's really interesting because I think because of being disabled and being trans and making it to 40 and being really humbled because not everyone does. Feeling choked up about that. Um, yeah, it's humbling. And, you know, it does make you think, like, what means something to me? You know, what's what gives me meaning? Like, And it makes you feel like you want to live fully. So I think... You know, one thing is, I mean, one thing is actually learning how to relax. Like, I think I've had to push so hard to make it to this point in my life where I have some kind of self-actualization and some moments of peace in my life are because of pushing so hard and working so hard um, for so long. And so, actually, I feel like I'm finally learning how to let go better. And I feel so much relief, so much relief. It's really hard to actually just let go and let myself relax on a certain level. Um, it's hard to let go of like anxiety and stresses and the things in your head and all that. So, and you know, to choose to be or to be able to achieve being present. Um, so, so I think that is something to live for. Is is uh, you know being able to find those moments. And then the other thing is um, teaching. So uh, I think, you know, I think for anyone with a chronic illness or disability, mortality is something that you consider more than non-disabled peers because of health concerns. It's like our health concerns are just different. And so, and you may have more health concerns than a non-disabled peer. And so you confront mortality on a different way on maybe a more you maybe think about it more I do anyway um and so then it brings me anyway to thinking about legacy work like what is your legacy and I think just being who you are on the earth has value I don't think you have to start a foundation or you know, have children or discover a new thing or whatever. I think that people have inherent value no matter what. But it does make me think, like, I don't, like, some people have this idea that they'll live into their 80s and 90s. (laughs) And I have, um, not that I won't, but I just don't have that. And me either. I can't, I don't, I have no expectation. I can't see it. It's, like, crazy to me that people do. It's, like... Yeah, I, 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 it's it's weird to me that people like just think that's going to happen. So I think part of me is like, if we're not here, if we don't know how long we'll be here for, and you, like, is there anything I could leave behind that would help other people or be of meaning or be wonderful for them? And so I've realized that teaching is really important to me. So I've taught like lots of zine workshops and comic workshops and disability workshops and you know, integrated dance movement workshops and all these kinds of things. And and some of it can be draining, like especially like disability 101 workshops and stuff like that. I think I want to be appreciated for doing the teaching. Um, so, but it's nice to do like a few workshops a year or something like that. It does, I do feel like that's part of my life's work. But it also is very reciprocal. Like I always learn from other people. And so that the learning is and listening is also what I'm choosing what to live for. And it's a funny thing because now that I'm at this point where I feel very fortunate to have made it to be this age and to also have stability in like my housing and things like that. I feel very much like wanting to support other people in getting those things. And a lot of people don't have those things. And so that's my life's work also. One thing I think about is the only reason I think I'm able to be in this place in my life of having some peace in my life and um, like stable housing is because 
I had so much overwhelming support from friends and family, like when my accident happened, who were like, we believe in you, we're supporting you. And people donated to like a, a trust fund that was set up for medical expenses and things for me after my accident. But then I couldn't touch that money because I was on disability for so many years. So then when I went off disability, my friend and I, we used that to buy this small house together that was wheelchair accessible house. And so that money for my house came from community. And so like now I'm trying to think about how can, uh, like I went to that exhibit at Wing Luke this last year on redlining, mm-hmm. a history of redlining in this area. And, um, and you know, there's a lot of statistics about racial inequities in housing and how people can build financial equity. And a lot of it is around owning a house or land. And so Sarah and I are trying to figure out like, um, basically we have room in our backyard where someone could build another unit, like a third unit. And so I want to prioritize people who wouldn't normally have like um, trans, BIPOC, and and or disabled folks who would n- not normally be able to buy anything or have stable housing to like be able to build something and come up with some kind of creative economic financial agreement in order to do that. So like, that's what I'm thinking about when I think about like, I could never have gotten to this place without the support. And, and so a disability justice value is interdependence and creating collective access. And so I think, yeah, like, how do you when you're facing the abyss and the darkness, like, it's really hard to do that alone. Like, that's how people die. (laughs) So the togetherness and like reaching for each other is something that basically keeps being modeled for me by my community and communities. And I feel forever grateful and humbled by that. And I just want to acknowledge that the only reason I've gotten to this point is because people did that for me. So I, I, otherwise I don't know how we would do, I don't know how we would make it through this life. Yeah. You know? People don't make it through life alone. No. What kind of city would you like to see Seattle become? One where uh, indigenous folks <laughs> have uh, the ability to frame that. Admission to the exhibition Double Clear is free and open to the public Wednesdays through Saturdays at the Hadrine Gallery on Capitol Hill through the end of February. On the evening of Sunday, March 1st, from 5 to 7, E.T. will give a closing talk about their exhibition. A link to their website, etrussian.com, will be provided in our show notes. E.T. Russian, thank you very much. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. Sarah. Chelsea. When you say that By the Sound is a community-invested podcast, what does that mean for our guests? It means that we pay them. Every guest interviewed is paid an appearance fee. Is it normal for podcasts to pay their guests? No. People say all the time that our time is our most valuable commodity, and yet most guests on radio and podcasts aren't paid a dime for their appearances. Huh. Our show's supporters who donate on Patreon help us to pay our local guest, and in doing so, they're investing in our local community. Are there other ways our Patreon supporters can help us pay our local guests? Yes. By the Sound community members who sign up for the Discovery, Westlake, or Gasworks membership levels are able to designate their first one to two months donations to a particular local guest of their choosing. If we are able to get an interview with the person they've chosen, then that guest will receive the amount that was pledged for them in addition to our normal guest payment. This is a great way for fans of the podcast to help us choose our guest, create a platform for interesting local people to share their voices, and to reinvest in our own community. Nice! How do listeners get in on this deal? They can visit ByTheSound.net and click the donate button. That's ByTheSound.net. Or they can go directly to patreon.com slash by the sound. That's P A T R E O N dot com slash by the sound. Aisha Hauser couldn't be with us to close our show today um, because she is hanging out at a truck stop. And I, I really don't know what that's all about, but you know. She makes the coffee. Oh, yeah. Um, but. Uh, Chelsea, what are you grateful for this week? Uh, This week, I am grateful for both of my kids, but 
particularly in this moment, Beatrice, who took me on a walk a few days ago and helped me find the best mud for squishing. Um, They have a really excellent eye for uh, mud texture. And there were like really great squelchy muds that I would have missed if I hadn't been with them. So shout out to Beatrice, mud spotter extraordinaire. And uh, E.T. Russian has decided to join us today. It took a bit of coercion, uh, (laughs) a little bit of threat. (laughs) E.T., what are you grateful for? Oh, my gosh. Uh, Last night, I had a really nice dinner with some of my coworkers who I really actually like. And it's awesome to like my coworkers enough to have dinner with them Mm -hmm. on a Friday night. And then we played a board game called Wingspan, which was very bird-oriented, and it was really, like, beautiful playing pieces and stuff. So that was cool, and I'm appreciative for that. And my cat, who is 18 years old, Lasso, and I love her. I love Lasso, too. We all love Lasso. I am grateful for local journalism uh, because something... A lot of folks might not know is that our financial supporters of By the Sound get uh, each day, usually in the morning, a grouping of great local journalism and some opinion uh, delivered to our Facebook group called We're By the Sound. And as I've been putting together these bulletins of, of, of sorts each morning, I've been just so impressed that in a time when it's become, you know, cliche to say journalism is dying and especially local journalism is dying, here in Seattle, there is just a plethora of, of local journalism that's like really good work. And for a city with 1.5 million people, for, for a, a, a region, I should say, 1.5 million people, um, it's very impressive to have such coverage. That said, a whole lot of that coverage, I'd say a disproportionate amount, does come from the Seattle Times, which, uh, though the journalism is fantastic, has some really problematic editorializing, uh, an editorial board that doesn't seem to reflect uh, the city I I know and see and love at all, but may pander more to a a more far-flung demographic and perhaps a more conservative demographic. So I, I would like to encourage our listeners who also appreciate local journalism to look at supporting uh, Crosscut, the South Seattle Emerald, Africatown Media, the West Seattle Blog, and Capitol Hill Blog, and other independent or at least uh, non-corporate sources of journalism that are really serving us here. And and to be clear, by the sound is not journalism. This is infotainment, <laughs> to be clear. Um, and um, But we do hope you are enjoying it. And we will be taking a hiatus for about a month. Don't worry, though, we will be back. And in the meantime, we will continue recording and getting together shows. But the fact is, uh, we're making enough money to pay our guests and making enough money from also from our our donors on Patreon to have some support for the host sometimes. But it's still the case that each additional episode is being funded by debt. So I need to take a lot of time in the next month to uh, do as much cat sitting as possible and to deliver a lot of groceries. But, uh, If listeners are able to support the show, then I'd strongly encourage them to go on patreon.com slash buy the sound. And for those who are already supporters, I'd like to remind them that if they are able to give $10 or more per month, we'd be, uh, we will invite them to our We're By The Sound gatherings, the first of which is coming up on Valentine's Day evening before the performance of Black Boys at the Moore Theater. So I think that's that's all. Any last words before hiatus? Catch you on the flippy. Catch you on the flippy, y'all. This has been <laughs> By the Sound, your community invested podcast.
Special thanks this week to Ashley Harrison. Who's Ashley Harrison? Ashley Harrison is our latest Discovery member. Thanks, Ashley. Ashley is giving us $25 per month. Oh, shit. Thanks, Ashley. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I believe it is so far. Ashley Harrison, Jessica Starrockers, and someone with the last name of Alvarez who might or might not be related to you. What's their first name? Beatrice. That's my mother. Your mom. My mom is donating. She is donating $25 a month. For this enterprise. Anyway, this morning I just that does not suck. I found out that uh, Ashley, who was giving us five dollars a month before, is now giving us bumped it up to twenty five dollars per month. Shit, way to deliver, y'all. By the sound is an Ahoy Hoy Media production. Ahoy Hoy.